on this episode of Doctor Who's That, we all wish Dodo would go extinct, meet the stickiest assassin, and Gaston finally gets Belle, only to find out the Belle is a ding. Hello and welcome to another episode of Doctor Who's That. I am your expert Doctor Who host, Sean Gleason. Joining me as always, we have Andy. Hello, I'm Andy. I'm the modern Doctor Who fan and the dumb one. And Bay. I'm just trying to get back to my own time. (laughs) And joining us this time, we have Kieran. So I guess for this episode, Kieran is the Doctor Who expert. Bonsoir. Our show, we um, take a Doctor Who newbie and introduce him to the show, starting with the first serial in 1963, lest we drop him off in France, which we are quickly learning was a terrible place. Let's just never go to France. Okay, so we're declaring here that uh, any future Doctor Who stories that are set in France are going to be automatically skipped. Got it. I mean, people usually end up dying when we go to France. That's all I'm saying. Well, I mean, they're just really mad at that guy, Hugo, uh, (laughs) or whoever that was. Yeah, Hugo Hugo Knotts. It's a real city of death in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he's he's he might be referring to a later episode that is probably my favorite story and is also set in France. But anyways, we're skipping it. Yep. It's I done. just want to say before we continue, this story works best if you don't know much about it before going into it. So if you're listening to us without having watched the story and you want to watch the serial at some point, I'd recommend turning us off now and watching the story. As best you can. So welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the massacre. So much sunshine and jokes, right? Yes. Yeah, that one was a funny one. Uplifting. So this story aired in February of 1966. And with our State of the Hoonian, our writer for this one is John Lucarotti. He was, of course, the writer of Marco Polo and the Aztecs. And he'd been commissioned way back by Dennis Spooner to write another story. It was a good sign when I saw him show up. And then I noticed in the last episode, he got a little help. So his original idea was to revive the Indian mutiny of 1857 concept that somebody's been trying to write for like three seasons now. But he was told that they were only accepting historical stories prior to 1600. So next, he submitted an idea involving the Vikings' discovery of Newfoundland. 
but this wasn't mysterious enough for John Wiles. In, in all fairness, it was also the realization that in order to film that, they would have to literally make Viking longships and film at sea, and that seemed untenable for <laughs> several reasons of budget. By now, Lucarati was getting really annoyed because he felt his guaranteed commission was at risk, and he got his agent involved in this whole thing. After some talks, it became clear that Wiles wanted a story that involved some type of religious conflict. So Lucarati took Donald Tosh's suggestion of this 1572 massacre, and it was commissioned under the title The War of God. He wrote the script. In some ways, it was partially inspired by another incident that occurred in 1562, where someone impersonated an abbot and was executed for it. Lucarati knew that William Hartnell had long wanted to play a different role in a story, so he incorporated this incident into his script. Andy's shaking his head. (laughs) It seems he was also asked to come up with a new companion, and in Lucarati's version, this was supposed to be the woman from the past and Chaplet who would escape with them on the TARDIS. Apparently, however, Donald Tosh and John Wiles did not really like Lucarati's script. But they had decided, due to all of the other problems with him and with the agent, that Tosh would just do any rewrites himself, and they'd cut Lucarati out of the rest of the process. Donald Tosh has apparently described what he got from Lucarati as a bad Hollywood version someone who'd never set foot out of Wisconsin thinks might have happened, which doesn't really seem to fit at all with everything that we've seen from John Lucarati in the past. I like to think that this story became the oddity that it is in some ways because these two men just had radically different views about what was interesting about the politics of 16th century France and had an argument. (laughs) Yeah, spoiler alert, neither of them were right. (laughs) Now I'm just annoyed that we didn't get Anne as the companion. (laughs) Oh, I'm kind of contrived. Real mad about that, actually, but we'll talk about it. Mm. It also seems like the original script included extensive scenes of the doctor impersonating the abbot. Tosh ended up removing doctors, the doctor's involvement with the abbot from the script, and potentially the audience's awareness that the abbot was not in fact the doctor, but we're not really sure about that. Okay, so we're just not sure. Uh. Yeah. We're, okay. we're not sure if we were meant to know that he wasn't the abbot, or if we were meant to be unsure, and that's one of those problems with this story being one of those that doesn't exist at all anymore. You know, this is such a relief to me because I was pretty confused through this entire serial, and knowing that I was not meant to be confused, but it's just a crazy mishmash jumble of ideas and people fighting for supremacy. (laughs) So, okay. The way I see it, there are five different interpretations of this story going around that I'll go through as quickly as I can. One, the doctor is impersonating the abbot. Two, the doctor is not impersonating the abbot. Stephen doesn't mess up all the doctor's plans he doesn't know about. And the fact that he looks like the doctor is just an unfortunate coincidence for Stephen. Three, we're not meant to know. Four, 
it's all in nuance we can't see because we don't have the pictures for this, that there could be large parts of what we're supposed to understand that are happening in the acting visually. And we just can't get that anymore. And five, all of those mixed into a blender with a giant topping of two people behind the scenes had an argument about what the script should be and the best parts of their opinions just sort of made up cake. And what we have <laughs> isn't any of those things. And it may be fine that way. Well, I mean, I, I think I, that one sounds the most plausible uh, as to the maybe fine that way. Uh, I refrain from <laughs> commenting just yet, but we'll get there. Just to be perfectly clear, the doctor and the abbot are two different people. Yeah. They look the same. Yep. One of them dies. Yeah. I mean, it's not the doctor because the doctor isn't dead at the end. One of them dies. We're not sure which one from now on. It just might be the abbot traveling. We don't know. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, the abbot, the abbot reflecting on Susan and Chesterton. <laughs> Tune in next week to find out if this confused 16th century political cleric is going to save the day or not. You know, they could mop this all up later if the doctor just comes back to this period and impersonates the abbot. <laughs> I was meant to be here all along. Okay. So many, many years later, oh John Luke Karate, after adapting the novel version of this story, also wrote this little short, short story in Doctor Who magazine, where he basically is sitting in a cafe in the south of France. He, John Luke Karate, and the doctor, the first doctor, as played by William Hartnell, but not William Hartnell, the real one comes in, sits down, and has a chat with him. The basic gist of how confused this might make the audience being resolved in this little story with, it's best not to worry about it. It's, it was all a long time ago. <laughs> this is some fan fiction. Is what this is. <laughs> Except it was written by a guy who wrote the original story, which doesn't mean it's not fan fiction. It's just very fancy, high in, you high know, concept. Brow, yeah. yeah. Highfalutin self-insert fan fiction. It also seems that they might have limited Hartnell's playing multiple roles in the story to just the first episode in the name of simplicity. It could have been just because Wiles wanted Hartnell involved as little as possible and that he wanted Lucarati's script to just keep him away as much as possible and him playing two roles was just too much William Hartnell for Wiles to deal with. His absence is kind of shocking, though. Yeah. <laughs> we finally get to see what it feels like for this to be happening, and the doctor is just gone. Yeah. And just to take a, a step back and out of the story for a moment, uh, in full disclosure, it's been a while since we watched one of these serials and podcasted, and it took a moment for me to get my bearings. I'm like, Oh, it's just the doctor and Steven. Where are we? Yeah. Where? What happened immediately before this? You know. And it doesn't help that this is the single story in the whole of the uh, history of the show where you are not meant to know what's going on for most of it. You are meant to be going on the journey that Steven is, and you don't get to know the context. And I don't think that we've mentioned it. It's completely missing. This is yes. a reconstruction. It is. 
So yes, lots of confusion. Great way to come back from, you know, our giant break after the birth of Bay's son. And now that he's on his way to college, we can get right. back to recording and talking about this. <laughs> yeah, it's been, yeah. <laughs> I understand that this is the hardest week to, to really deal with, but once you've got an empty nest, you'll come to terms with it. But anyway... Other changes to Lucavati's script was, of course, Wiles and Tosh decided to not have Anne become the new companion, figuring she'd be just as much trouble to write for as they found Katerina to be. So Tosh rewrote the entire ending and tagged on a scene involving a potential descendant of Anne's who would be the companion. So we have Tosh to blame for that. Lucavati of course, was very unhappy with all these changes, and he initially asked to have his name removed from the story until his agent talked him out of that. So, yeah, more fun going on behind the scenes in Wildstown. Season two is the most well-oiled machine. You know, the, the show occasionally gets just a run where everything is going flawlessly, which means that, you know, for a whole year, you didn't have a behind-the-scenes behind story that was really elaborate. Yeah. And season three... Every single time <laughs> you've got this cryptic key that can explain why things are the way they are. And that key's name is John Wiles. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, John Wiles blew things up. Hartnell is like in the worst mood. So some important people involved with this story. Our director is named Patty Russell. And she, and notice the pronoun, she briefly worked in theater as an actress before moving into television, preferring the schedule. Uh, she was the first female floor manager at the BBC and chose to go by the more non-gendered Patty rather than Patricia, figuring that would help advance her career. Because, you know, 50s and 60s Britain. Because it probably did. Yeah. Uh, she worked primarily as a PA in the 50s on things like the uh, Quatermass serials, where she also did a bit of acting. Uh, she started directing in 1962 on the Soap Compact and was one of the first two female directors at the BBC. She was initially scheduled to direct the third serial of Doctor Who, but she ended up becoming unavailable so she didn't get to direct until this one. And then she would go on to direct three more stories in the 70s. And no one has a bad word to say about her. Yeah. I was also going to say, is it just me or is any time a woman is involved in, in the production, things just are better? <laughs> um, the second female director in Doctor Who's, Doctor Who's history does not have nearly the uh, success or luxurious pedigree that uh, Patty Russell does. You'll get to that story down the line. Yeah, so in the 80s, Patty would work for Yorkshire TV, directing many episodes of the show Emmerdale. And she also did charitable work in the area involving domestic cats, so even another thing to like her about. Uh, she apparently died fairly recently, I guess in 2017, although I have 1917 written in my notes, which just doesn't make sense, at the age of 89. The greatest of all the Doctor Who directing casualties of the Somme. <laughs> so some of our cast members, we have Annette Robertson, who played Anne Chaplet. Uh, she was the ex-wife of actor John Hurt. 
There's also Eric Thompson, who plays Gaston, who is Emma Thompson's father. He was also the uh, basically the face and main narrating voice of half the British children's TV in the 60s. So seeing him as a French religious fanatic was widely regarded as confusing for many kids. <laughs> Andre Morel played Tavan, and he's had plenty of roles in television and film. He was Professor Quatermass in the 1958 Quatermass serial. Dr. Watson in Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles. He was in Ben-Hur and Bridge on the River Kwai, amongst others. He has a big scene in, in Ben-Hur, too. He has the whole, how do you fight an idea speech that's you know kind of iconic, really. He was a big get for the show because his career was on the slide. And we have Jackie Lane, who would play Dodo at the end, our new actual new companion. Uh, Jackie was born in 1941. She'd previously had a few TV and theater roles and had apparently been in the running for the role of Susan back in 1963. According to some sources, she was offered the role but ended up turning it down, not wanting to commit to a long-term series. According to other sources, she was not actually offered the role but ended up withdrawing herself from consideration. But apparently when she auditioned for this role, she'd had long hair that Wiles thought could be styled differently each story that would give her an interesting, ever-changing look, and then learned that she'd cut it almost immediately after she left her audition. So <laughs> that idea didn't pan out. As for the survival of this story, or lack thereof, this is one of those rare stories along with Lucarati's Marco Polo and Mission to the Unknown, with absolutely no surviving footage whatsoever. So not even a single clip survives from this. And thanks to our overarching series villain, John Wiles, we don't even have telesnaps. So all we really have are promotional photos. Luckily, this is the point where the better quality soundtrack recordings that were taken off air have started up. The, the quality of the audio has at least gotten better. Yeah, it, this was def noticeably better than some that we've had in the past where we could barely, you know, where you need to read along with the transcript. And then this story, there's also a lot of historical background to it. So I'll go through the historic history as quickly as possible, because this is probably the only historical based on an event that most viewers would not have been familiar with at all. This Myself is exactly included. what I was going to ask you about, because it seems to me that, I mean, I had AP European history, but I wasn't terribly familiar with it. It seemed like a British viewer might have a little bit more understanding. Not that much. Yeah. I mean, I studied medieval Renaissance European history. That was like my major in college. And yeah, I, although I primarily focused on British history, but still I knew know absolutely nothing about this going in. I can try and give you a, from a class I took in third university a very quick summation. There is a series of religious wars between Protestantism and Catholicism in France, the Huguenots and the Catholics that goes on for about 80 years, the French wars of religion. There are three main factions. There are the Protestants who are very much an oppressed underclass, but a lot of intellectuals belong to them. There is the actual crown of France that for most of this and in this story is really run by Catherine de' Medici, 
who wasn't even French. She was an Italian and yeah. everyone thought she was a witch. She might have been, <laughs> to be actually honest. And then there were the actual hardcore Catholics, the Guise faction. And when they talk about the Abbot of Amboise and his master, the Cardinal, that's who they mean. Yeah. I think that's about right. That all sounds about right. And yeah, so one of the main Protestants, of course, was Gaspard de Coligny, who's the main character in this story. And the events right around now, Catherine de' Medici's has been using the chaos of these wars to consolidate her power and eliminate her enemies. But she has recently failed in her goal to marry her daughter to the Catholic King of Spain. And de Coligny managed to arrange the marriage between that daughter and the Protestant Duke, Henri. And that marriage takes place August 18th, 1572. This is Henry of Navarre. Yeah. Right? Yes. With many rich and powerful Huguenots in attendance. And so on the 22nd, likely on Catherine's orders, Coligny is shot but survives. And probably to try to cover up the crown's role in all this, you know, there's now a larger plot to assassinate Huguenot leaders in Paris. The killings begin the night of the August 23rd, goes into the 24th. And what starts as targeting, ki- targeted killings breaks into mob violence by the Catholics. De Coligny is thrown naked out a window and beheaded by the angry mob. Slaughter spreads throughout the city and then throughout all of France. And somewhere between 5,000 and 30,000 people end up dead. The Huguenot movement is completely crippled. And it's been called the worst of the century's religious massacres. And it's important to keep in mind, this isn't just a massacre. This is the massacre. This is, as far as we can tell, the word massacre was coined to describe this event. I mean, we usually use the term pogrom with, you know, Jewish massacres, but that's what this is. This is like a full-scale religious cleansing from a city. From France, yeah. From the whole country, okay. Politically and militarily doesn't in the long term work because the survivors managed to hold their military strongholds in cities that didn't have as strong a Catholic presence. And it just jump started the next 15 years of war rather than ending anything. Well, and it also wasn't the first one, as we heard in this story, there was a massacre that the, the mere mention of which sets Anne off. That one at Vassy. Do you know, was that a real event? I think so, yes. But anyway, we should move on. Some other quick notes about this story before we get into it. This is the first time that the Doctor's actor played a double role as the main character and a lookalike, but not the last. Of course, we did have a previous other Doctor, but that was clearly not the same actor. It's a rare story in which the Doctor doesn't personally meet the villain of the story. He's kind of Sir not appearing in this serial the whole time. It's our first story with only one companion. And really, our first Dr. Light story. Each episode represents roughly one day. So keep that in mind as we go through as well. It doesn't flow like normal stories do, where you have the cliffhanger at the end, and then you reprise that immediately. It's structured like Deadwood was, with you know dawn and, and, and sunset being the beginning and end point of episodes as a dramatic conceit. 
So, we will move on to episode one, The War of God. We open with a nice woodcut of Paris, which in no way prepares us for the not-so-nice woodcuts we'll get to see later on. There's a dirt-covered lad kicking a paper ball through the streets as the TARDIS lands, and the doctor surprises Stephen by actually knowing that they're in France, until he points out the street sign right near them. The doctor does recognize pretty quickly that they're in 16th century France, and decides he needs to go and meet an apothecary named Charles Preslin. They go back and actually get dressed for the times. While they're in the TARDIS, at the nearby house of the Admiral de Coligny, Gaston is talking with Nicholas Moose about how the Catholics of Paris hate their kind, and Moose is just trying to calm Gaston's temper down, telling him, you know, control yourself, keep the peace. Later at a tavern, Gaston, Moose, and others drink to Henry of Navarre, their Protestant prince. Gaston is less than enthused when Simon Duval appears and makes a toast to Henry's Catholic bride, with Gaston choosing to choke on his drink. Oh, that's what he did. So Gaston complains to the landlord about the thin Catholic brew that he serves, and Moose is just there like, dude, come on, chill. Well, and even the barkeep, he's like, I hate these Huguenots as much as the next man. (laughs) It's like, whoa. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you've got Gaston in your bar. (laughs) No one drinks like Gaston. Come on. (laughs) No one gets ripped apart by a mob like Gaston. (laughs) The thing is, is, is his religious orientation in any way the reason people don't like Gaston? No. He's terrible. (laughs) There's some talk between Gaston and Duval while Moose is trying to smooth everything over. And Moose is just like, okay, this time we'll drink properly to the princess. And Gaston, of course, does his choking thing again, much to everyone's delight except Duval, the landlord, and Moose. I think we should call him Nicholas if we possibly can. This does not take place. Oh, yes. Nicholas is Moose. Okay. Yes. Yes. This does not take place in Riverdale. (laughs) there's no squirrel either hey you know come on moose you gotta take it easy on the catholics Uh. (laughs) yes he is not an actual moose he's the less oafish of them (laughs) duval speaks with the landlord to verify that these patrons are associates of de coligny and the landlord's just talking about how much he hates these huguenots but he's got to eat you know A bit of coin is passed, and the landlord agrees to report on anything that he might hear. Look, I'll be careful. I'm perfectly careful of of looking after myself. I'll just walk around Paris and see the sights. As Duval leaves, the doctor and Stephen enter. The doctor's talking about how he's going to go to the other side of the city to speak with Preslin about his scientific work. And he wants Stephen to just wait in the TARDIS. Despite all evidence to the contrary, Stephen is trying to convince the doctor that he can take care of himself. He'll just wander around, take in the sights. He won't get into any trouble. Famous last words. (laughs) After some persuasion, 
the doctor tells Stephen to avoid talking with anybody, gives him some money and promises that he'll be right back, you know, by the end of the night and not four episodes from now. And, you know, he leaves him alone in this perfectly nice tavern filled with the worst landlord in the world and a whole bunch of religious maniacs. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Two warring factions. Just put him right in the center. Yeah. Just drop him in. I I usually think that some of these plots to separate the companion from the doctor seem a little contrived, but I actually really liked this whole Preslan subplot. I thought that was very cool. Yeah, I mean, gives doctor an actual reason why he'd want to go, and it's going to be something that would be completely boring and pointless to Stephen, I'm sure. But more than that, it puts the onus on Stephen to just cope on his own (laughs) like a functional human being. (laughs) For a couple of hours. Don't That's be weird, all. Stephen. Just be normal. Why can't you be normal, Stephen? And if you treat Stephen like a PTSD survivor that some people genuinely consider the character to be, that's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. And if you view Stephen as an idiot, which other people happen to think. <laughs> that's also a terrible thing to do. Yeah. So as the doctor leaves... He bumps into someone in the doorway who seems to recognize him and follows him out. Stephen goes to follow, noticing this, but is stopped by the landlord because somebody's got to pay for the drinks. There's some stuff here about Stephen trying to pay with the wrong coins, which Nicholas steps in and takes care of. And this is how Stephen becomes friends with Nicholas. He basically is trying to pay for a drink with a $1,000 bill and the landlord can't change it. Stephen asks Nicholas how to get where the doctor is going because his friend was being followed by somebody. But Nicholas convinces him it's not safe to wander around Paris by himself and invites Stephen to join him and his friends. And I guess Stephen immediately forgets that he was supposed to be, you know, watching out for the doctor and sits and talks. So now, doesn't this encourage you to continue with your theories, Monsieur Prisoner? Yes, I, I am Charles Prisler. At Preslin's apothecary, which the doctor got to safely, he's knocking, but the man inside doesn't answer. The doctor enters anyway and says that he's looking for Preslin. The man claims that Preslin has left Paris. The doctor's sad to hear this because he wanted to talk to Preslin about his ideas involving small creatures that cause serious illness. He wanted to tell him about some guy in Germany making machines that'll help him look at these germs. And is just like, doesn't that make you want to continue your work, Mr. Preslin? The man finally admits he is indeed Preslin, but these days you could never be too careful. And despite all these warnings, nobody seems to realize this is probably a bad time to be in Paris. Yeah, the the doctor doesn't realize where he is until so late in this that is mystifying yeah well i mean he doesn't he doesn't he knows exactly where he is he doesn't know when he is yeah yeah the two things that kind of bother me about this i can't remember where lucarati comes down on the idea of changing history the first because if the doctor really isn't interested in changing history he's not going to you know tell preslan about all of these things that could affect the flow yeah (laughs) So Luke Karate wrote the Aztecs and the original You Can't Rewrite History speech. Tosh is even more hardline about it. 
he basically was of the opinion that there is no point in doing an historical story if you were going to get anything wrong. <laughs> that if, if you're not fulfilling the educational mandate, you may as well just go back to the Daleks. Well, I, I figured that the final changes to this story were probably by Tosh, and he would have put the kibosh on anything. The Tosh kibosh. <laughs> it, it just it just kind of surprised me that someone with that tack on how the, the historicals are supposed to go would have the doctor trying to slowly redirect things. It's also odd because Preslin isn't real. <laughs> Almost everyone else in this story is a real historical figure, but none of the actual Protestant intellectuals would have fit the story. And Tosh was so much of a stickler for it that he wouldn't pick somebody who was out of Paris time or that was too politically important. So we got somebody who doesn't exist in a story where almost everyone else does. Oh, that's a real shame. I was actually hoping uh, upon first watching that germ theory would fit into the story somehow. Because I, I, you know, I had no idea where this was going to go, except for a massacre. So it's like, is this going to be pestilence? Not this one. So it might figure in important ways into the story that is happening to Hartnell that we don't get to see. Yeah, it could be a wacky historical romp with a with with a guy from the 16th century. Maybe he gets shrunk down again and and fights <laughs> an evil alien germ. I don't know. No one does. We get to make it up in our heads because they're not going to tell us. That's silly. The doctor would never fight a evil alien germ. I wasn't even making a reference to that. <laughs> I, I genuinely, genuinely hadn't realized, no, that may be a thing that happens someday. Anyways. Two of your co-hosts are completely lost. <laughs> I'll have you completely bewildered by the time I'm finished with you. Back at the tavern, Gaston being his pleasant self. He is such a dick. Can we talk about that for just a second? (laughs) We'll see many moments where he's awful. And he's meant to be one of the nicer people. I know. I know. I could tell I was supposed to like him, but boy, he sucks. Who does this story actually like? There isn't these people. No one likes these people very much, except maybe one long dead French politician who the story gets weirdly sympathetic with at one point. Most of these people, this story doesn't like it hits the bartender and he's barely there for more than five minutes. Yeah. okay, well, that guy's a jerk, too. Nicholas Moose seems to be a pretty decent fella. Yeah. Nicholas seems okay. Henry seems okay. Who's Henry? The, the king. Charles was the king. That's not Henry of Navarre. That's King Charles the Ninth. Yes. Oh, okay. Who had been crowned when he was 10. And yeah, we never mother... see Henry, right? Yeah, He's Henry is actually... also, no. sir, not appearing in this story. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. He's two kings later. Uh, yeah. Henry, okay. Charles the Ninth, basically, his mother has been running things his whole life. He is now about 22, and he cares about two things in the world, playing tennis and hunting. And historical fact The main thing we know about him is the book he wrote about hunting that wasn't published until a century after he died, and that is apparently really important as a document of the history of hunting. Other than that, he also greenlit this religious genocide. That's basically all we can say about him. What a bro. He dies two years after this story of TB. Thus, we get the hunting ground comments. Yeah. And the tennis rackets. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I like what a bro though, right? It's like, look, I like, I like three things. Okay. I like tennis. I like shooting animals and genocide. And I love my mommy. (laughs) I love your mom. You know, it's like, 
That's it. So yeah, Gaston is giving Stephen the third degree. He's just saying, you know, look, it's my job to protect Henry, but Nicholas is, thinks he's just way too suspicious. And we all live in and around D.C., right? These people are basically politico hacks. We have all seen them in a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is a type that exists that has existed a long time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'll take a gin and tonic. Uh, so yeah, back when I was hanging out with King Henry, you know, yeah, well, it's just a King Henry. I, I call him Hen, but whatever. Like, I know. Also, the king is played by an actor named Barry Justice. I know nothing about him, but his name is Barry Justice. And I really <laughs> needed to state that. So after talking to Stephen for about five minutes, they decide he really doesn't know what's going on here or just in general. But as an Englishman, he'll probably support the Protestants, so he's probably okay. What about the girl? Where is she? She's just a sermon. A chance to bait a Catholic. Forget her. Come, come, come. Elsewhere, a young servant girl, Anne Chaplet, is running through the city, chased by a group of guards. She ends up bumping into Stephen as he is trying to leave the bar, and she rushes into the tavern. The guards rush by Stephen into the inn as well, and there's Gaston to block their way, demanding to know why the Lord Cardinal's men are chasing some girl. They explain that she's supposed to go and work for the Abbot of Amboise, so Gaston decides to mess with these guards, and swords are eventually drawn until the guards realize they're outnumbered. We should just go. I do like that Gaston is kind of like the original, like, all cops are bet-out, right? <laughs> Considering the week he's about to have, he's not wrong. <laughs> Steven comes back in because he's concerned about the girl, and Gaston's just like, who cares? I just wanted to make some chumps out of those Catholics. See you later, dude. Is this the this can't be the only other time that a random jerk Frenchman named Gaston speaks up for a young girl trying to rush through town who's in trouble because everyone thinks she knows too much. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Stephen tries to convince Gaston they should check up on that girl, but Gaston doesn't really care about her. Finally, Gaston calls the girl over, maybe just to get Stephen to shut up about it. And while the girl's reluctant to talk, the ever-charming Gaston threatens to call back the guards. She says that she ran because she overheard people at the house saying that what happened in Vassy would happen here as well within the week. And her father had died at Vassy. This concerns Gaston, and Moose explains to the very confused Stephen that ten years ago, a hundred Huguenots were slaughtered at Vassy by Catholics. Moose decides that they have to protect the girl and sends her to de Coligny's house, while Gaston goes off to warn Henry about a potential threat. Moose explains recent events to Stephen. Back at Preslin's, the doctor's learning about the abbot of Amboise, and here we learn that he's the right hand of a cardinal and is a very dangerous man who'd have no problems hunting down scientists and throwing them in jail for heresy. Hence why Preslin is hiding. And now the abbot's coming to Paris. Hearing about this dangerous fellow, the doctor is, of course, interested in this guy. And I think this is the last time we see the actual doctor for, like, three more episodes. Making things very confusing. 
It's especially confusing because I, so in my notes, I was like, I thought he was going to see an apothecary so that he could meet the actual micro, like the actual germ guy. Which he does. Who was in hiding. Yes. Right. But I thought that the apothecary was like supposed to show him to the germ guy. Like an and intermediary. Right. And that's why like. No. He, that, yeah. That yeah. Was well, him. no, no, I know that now. But, but yeah. at the time I thought. And so I didn't even recognize that like he wanted to go meet the abbot. So like as far as I know, he just disappeared. And then like. <laughs> uh I mean, well, it's possible that the doctor wanted to go meet the abbot. We have no idea what the doctor does during the next three episodes. Where does that little boy take him then? A good question. <laughs> yeah, there who are knows? Hints, right? There are little hints that it's something, but not what we think it is. Yeah, we have no idea. There's absolutely no nothing that tells us what the doctor does for the rest of this story. Right, but didn't they even talk about where he was going? Like, he doesn't, I no, remember like, okay. They pointedly don't. The, the the best theory some people can come up with is that he's helping Preslan get to safety, but he doesn't take Preslan with him wherever he goes. No, he doesn't. His yeah. little boy yeah. takes him somewhere. That's whack. This is whack. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. So at the Abbott's residence, Duval is yelling at the guard captain for allowing the girl to get away because, you know, he's worried about what'll happen if she tells anybody what she overheard and orders the guards to find the girl. Back at the tavern, Stephen's just sitting there, sad and alone, waiting for the doctor to return. And can I just say that, like, the (laughs) the reconstruction that we have is so funny because it's, like, they only have that, like, that one still of him that they've, I don't even know if that's actually the still or if they, like, photoshopped it somewhat. But it's basically just him sitting there in his goofy outfit and it's in silence and it just cuts back and forth to him sitting there in his goofy outfit. So even if like that's how the shot actually went, it's so much better that he just has this goofy face on. And he's just his goofy gape jawed look, sitting there alone, nursing a drink for hours, getting glared at by the bartender who yeah. hates the entire human race. It was so good. My my favorite part of these reconstructions are where they obviously only have one or two good shots, right? Of uh, yep. one of the actors. somebody emoting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you have like them emoting and their face pasted over a, oh, a, God. another body. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite is the couch scene. <laughs> that was so hilarious. I mean, we. I don't want to. I don't want to get like go too far ahead, but. Uh, I, okay, I will. When it's when the the it's when the um uh the admiral is like you know he's 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 hurt he's convalescing on his couch and it looks so hilarious to me like he's just kind of like huh just like on your <laughs> Oh, and, it's so good. And there are a few cases where they have clearly taken the body and have taken images from other things the actor has been into. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. The, the guy who plays DeColony, Leonard Sachs, is, they, they clearly found another thing where he has a similar enough beard that they can get away with it. <laughs> oh, shit. I just really like that still of gape-jawed yokel Steven. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to forget his very first appearance. Yeah, no. in that moment, this wouldn't entirely be as funny as it is if it didn't dramatically work. The idea that Stephen is just—it's not even in over his head. He looks up and cannot see the surface of the ocean he is drowning in at all. 
He has no <laughs> ability to function in the situation he is in to a degree <laughs> that he is only just processing. Yeah. 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 There's definitely a lot of shots in that where it's just like, no one's home. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know how to find an address here. Right. I don't know how to interpret a street sign. Anytime there's Nothing. like conflict, Stephen is in conflict in this episode. They, they, they use this one shot of him. That's just like, Oh, it's, uh, that's my favorite. <laughs> He's almost as adrift as the sea beggar. Yes. Oh, thank you. Nice. And, and bringing us back on track. Yeah. While Steven's there, Duval enters looking for the girl. And the landlord points him toward the man over there who is with the Huguenots and might know. After some monetary persuasion, the landlord just tells Duval that she was sent to de Coligny's house. Duval does go over and talks to Stephen, lets him know that there's a curfew, and Stephen's just like, eh, don't worry, I'll be leaving as soon as my friend arrives. And Duval, the very slimy fellow, tells the landlord to make sure he notes who this friend is. Of course, immediately after this, Nicholas comes back in to a hearty greeting by Stephen. And when the, when the curfew bell rings, Nicholas tells Stephen to come with him and he could return back here in the morning. It's not a good idea to stay here during the curfew. For every moment of extreme drama, everything else is tied together by like farcical misunderstandings that are suddenly life or death. It's it's yeah. it's the highest stakes episode of Three's Company. <laughs> so Nicholas tells the landlord that if an old man comes in, let him know that his friend is staying at the Admiral, which, you know, I'm sure that the landlord bothered to listen to or pay attention to in any way. If it hadn't been for the Vicomte de Laran, the captain would almost certainly have caught her. It was pure mischance. I'm sure she couldn't have made any sense of what we said. Back at the Abbott's resident, his secretary, Stephen Colbert, well, Roger Colbert. I'm glad I'm not the only one who did that. <laughs> is explaining to the Abbot about the girl, and the annoyed Abbot is just loudly thumping something. Duval arrives and lets them know that the girl is with the Admiral. We see the Abbot as he orders her retrieval, and he looks exactly like the doctor. Dun dun dun. I was very excited for the doctor to be impersonating the Abbot. And felt very betrayed as this comes up. I was more excited for the abbot to be impersonating the doctor. <laughs> Bay is looking in confusion. So in my in my head, I was like, okay, is this like him from another like point in the timeline, and he's confused, or it's like him running into himself? Uh, and I was like, wow, this is really high concept. And then like Bay, I was very much like let down. Okay, so this is, I think, the first time it comes up. There is a rule that you just need to accept for Doctor Who going forward. It doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes people who travel in the TARDIS just meet their own doppelgangers. It just it just happens. Yeah. <laughs> I just assumed that now he knew exactly where he was in history and who he had to impersonate to get things to happen the way he wanted them to happen for the lulls. Not the best venue for lulls. No. Yeah. <laughs> So this is the end of episode one, and we move on to episode two, The Sea Beggar. And Hartnell is on vacation this week, so he's mostly absent. And so we just jump into new action, no recaps or anything. 
Gaston is complaining to Nicholas that Henry refuses to believe in the Catholic plot, and de Coligny is unwilling to accept the word of a serving girl. Nicholas thinks they need to gather more evidence, and Gaston's worried that, you know, they won't get enough evidence until the knife is placed firmly in Henry's back. But Nicholas thinks there's probably really nothing to worry about. The girl, what she overheard, is probably misinterpreted and meaningless. There's no big deal going on here. Stephen, meanwhile, has returned to the tavern, learned the doctor hasn't come back, and is pretty much told to shove off and hang out with his Huguenot friends. Allow me to take her with me. Oh, no, 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 that girl is called, um, uh, um, Genevieve. And she's been working here ever since the Admiral came to Paris. He goes back to Nicholas, who promises to help Stephen look for his friend. But first he has to deal with Colbert, who's come looking for the girl. Colbert explains that a girl ran off after overhearing somebody mention the town of Vassy, probably just scared by her memory about what happened there. No big deal. Nothing's going on. She just got scared and ran. It takes a lot to be so suspicious that Stephen can spot it. Yeah. <laughs> Anne enters but is shooed away with Gaston giving a flimsy story about her being um, Frenchy McFrench name or something. A girl who's worked here for years. Honest. Colbert storms off as Gaston laughs. And Stephen identifies him as the guy who followed his friend out of the tavern. They go to the window and see Colbert talking to somebody outside, who Stephen identifies as the doctor and the others identify as the abbot. Gaston, of course, immediately accuses Stephen of being a spy and demands to know how long Stephen's been working for the abbot. This was like really top 10 dumbest Steven moments. And <laughs> like there, there is a list. There's a list. <laughs> yes. If we thought that at times Ian could be an idiot, Steven is just an idiot. At oh, most hey, times. your mortal enemy. That's my friend. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Stephen does point out here that it would have been really foolish of a spy to betray himself as stupidly as he just did. And Nicholas is like, you know, you're absolutely right. But Gaston is convinced that it's a trap because that's just who Gaston is. No one's as suspicious as Gaston. Moose agrees to help Stephen find his friend. Hey, let's go find your friend. Uh, come on, Stephen. <laughs> you know that guy? Nah, nah, Stephen, that's the abbot. Crazy. Sorry. They, I, it's on me for refusing to call him Nicholas. I have Moose written all over my notes. And oh, and I, I have Nicholas written Moose. all over my notes. This is going to be great. Continue. At the Louvre, Marshal Tavon and Simon Duval are talking about how the abbot went to get the girl back. Yeah, I kept getting the marshal and the admiral confused the <laughs> whole you. time. My notes, it's all just screwed up. Like, I'm like, the marshal argues that the... No, 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 black space, black space, black space. That was the... Uh, no, that was... Oh, and it's just... It was... There are a lot beardy. of officials. There are a lot of French people. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of confusing names and names that sound oddly identical. And yes. They have names? Yeah. I don't even know most of their names. The marshal is Tavan. 
the admiral is de Coligny, the king is Charles the Ninth. His mommy is Catherine de Medici. Medici. <laughs> and that is a chair with a panda. Yes. <laughs> oh, that is a very unkind way to describe her. <laughs> <laughs> so the marshal is the marshal of France. It's sort of the minister who is, I mean, in, in the UK, it would be the home secretary. I was it's, just like, okay, he's the sheriff of Nottingham and that guy's the bad guy. Yes. He's right, he's like, sort of halfway uh, between like a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and like the Attorney General. In actually, terms this of is a very good, good way of describing it because we do get like a council scene and it definitely feels like awful. It, no, I, I actually really <laughs> like the, the council scene. It felt like uh, they're trying Andy, to. Andy, I'm pretty sure you're alone in your feelings of hatred toward this story. No, no, no. I don't hate the story. I just like the, the council <laughs> scenes were just like. It was just like people yelling uh, a lot and like everybody's like, we should fight Spain. And then somebody else is like, that's too expensive. And then somebody's like, we've got money. And then the king's like, I want to go hunt. And it's just it's like, too expensive. and some people are just there going exterminate, exterminate. Yeah. It's, and, I, and the thing is, the most important person in those scenes is the ones who, the one who isn't talking yes. at all. Yeah. Catherine de Medici doesn't say a word. And because of that, the power dynamic is Everybody else will burn themselves out. But when she does open her mouth later in the series, you know things about to go down. Yes. Yeah. Because she was she wasn't even from this country and she was running it and yeah. was going to keep on running it for a good while no matter what happened. And they all knew it. Back to the Louvre. Yes. So at the Louvre, Tavon is saying that the abbots going after the girl was incredibly foolish. All his presence will do is make the Huguenots suspicious. Tavan doesn't really trust the abbot and asks Duval to report anything he does to him. He also wants to know more about this oddly stupid Englishman who's staying with at uh, de Coligny's house because he's concerned that maybe there's some sort of pact going on with the English. As they mention an assassin named Bandeau and soon say the name the sea beggar, De Coligny himself enters, commenting that he hopes that this talk about the sea beggar is in reference to the Dutch and their need for aid against Spain. Tavon asks him point blank about Stephen, who's just like, oh, he's just some lost traveler who my friend Nicholas brought home last night. After this, Tavon leaves to meet with the Queen Mother. So it's like the is like the admiral just running like a home for wayward boys or something. <laughs> like, like, what are all these people doing hanging out at the admiral's house, like smoking? It's a cigarette? home for wayward Protestants, right? I guess all of these guys are court officials and they're secretaries who are the people Stephen yeah. is hanging around with. The colony was the guy who won the last war in this succession, and so Catherine's been stuck with him the whole time, and he has been maneuvering around her this whole time. And she has wanted to watch him die slowly this whole time. Yes. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we need to talk about Bondo for a second. Because he shows up all over my notes as B-O-N-D-O, like an <laughs> adhesive. And that is not exactly until I read I over Shawnee's notes where his name is spelled like Bordeaux, did I have any realization that, oh, yeah, that's how it would be in French. He's just an adhesive. He's James Bond, but French. He's James Bond, but underwater in France. Yeah, with a, yeah, with a terrible aim. Yes. 
Your friend is the Abbot of Amboise. No. Please, don't see how it can be. Unless what? It is just possible that the doctor is pretending to be the Abbot. For what reason? Where can I find the Abbot? But anyway, as this is going on, Stephen and Nicholas are searching for Preslin's shop and Stephen sees the sign, he literally runs toward it and knocks over an old woman as he goes. She tells them that Preslin's been gone for two years, arrested for heresy, and he's probably been burnt. <laughs> but he died 10 years ago this very night. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now he's a ghost. Right. And then she takes the choker off and her head just rolls down the street. <laughs> Even Nicholas is beginning to think that Stephen's friend is really the abbot at this point. And Stephen thinks, you know, he's probably just pretending to be the abbot because that is 100% the kind of thing that the doctor would do. And here, Stephen's right. That is 100% the kind of thing the doctor would do. So Stephen wants to go and find and talk with the doctor and he promises to return if he learns about any type of plot. But even Nicholas is suspicious at this right. point and insists that Stephen has to return with him so we can all decide what to do next. In response, Stephen trips him and runs off in a Three Stooges moment. Which is even more suspicious. <laughs> yeah. I know. And I, I just like the, in, in, my, in my head this moment's like, look, man. Uh, your story is, it's, oh, it's really terrible. You look really bad right now. And I just, and he's just like, well, fair point. Goodbye. There's some Catholic now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've all had a conversation where we wanted to just out of sheer social embarrassment to shove the other person over, flee the country and never see them again. But, you know, here we just get the full arc of Stephen then immediately realizing he's still going to have to go and talk to the guy he just shoved over for no sensible reason. <laughs> Back at the Abbott's residence, Colbert and Duval are talking about the assassin and the girl some more. Though we do learn here that Colbert only met the Abbott yesterday. So nobody here actually knows what the Abbott looks like. He's only seen him from a distance and they're teeing it up yeah. so hard right now. All I, of the breadcrumbs are there. I, I think they're really just setting up Stephen's complete confusion even more so, but I don't know. But they're setting it up in scenes Stephen isn't even yes. in. I think they want us, I really think that they want us to be confused too as to whether or not he's the abbot. That's mm -hmm. my read on this whole thing because it's the only thing that makes sense with scenes like this to me but oh yeah no it's it's very it's clearly intentional like they yeah i mean it whether or not the plot thread was just dropped i mean it was clearly there to some degree at one point i would guess there's probably subtle hints in hartnell's acting because you could hear it in his voice that there's a clear difference between the abbot and the yeah. doctor yeah that's true this is something that really bothered me about this one being lost because I think we're missing a lot of good physical comedy acting, you know, like there yeah. are a lot of things in the performances that we're missing. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd say there's a lot in Hartnell's performance that we're missing. Plus, there are three or four times where the most dramatic and effective thing they're doing, because Patty Russell's a good director, is just using silence. I mean, when we first yeah. meet the Abbott, 
it's just drumming on a table and no speech. And that's mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. theme through the whole story that does not translate to this medium that well. Back at the Coligny's house, Nicholas is asking Anne if she's ever seen Stephen before. She hasn't, but she thinks he's kind and gentle and doesn't believe anything about all their suspicions about Stephen being a spy. Gaston just tells her to GTFO and refers to her as a nothing. These French really are just begging for a revolution, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> I mean, they're going to get something. It's probably <laughs> not what they're hoping for. But... They decide that Stevens probably run off to rejoin the abbot. Tell him the sea beggar dies tomorrow. That evening, Stevens lurking in the shadows outside of the abbot's residence. Which he found somehow. Somehow. He sneaks his way up to an open window and listens in on Tavan, Duval, and Colbert. He hears Tavan order them to find the abbot and let him know that the sea beggar dies tomorrow after the council meeting at the Louvre. This is the moment I missed because I couldn't figure out how Stephen had gotten the sea beggar snippet and and to bring back. I I didn't catch that he was just like... Well, and once again, they tee it up too. They're like, well, the abbot is mysteriously missing. And I'm like, yes, he's off doing doctor things. Yeah, but <laughs> no. <laughs> Afterward... Duval notes to Colbert that the command to go through with this assassination could only have come from the Queen Mother. Stephen climbs down from the window and hurries back to de Coligny's, where a servant lets him in to Nicholas's quarters. Stephen decides to leave a note. But he doesn't have any paper, so what do you do when you're under suspicion? Why, you root through somebody's desk to look for a piece of paper that you could write a note on. Gaston comes in to talk to Moose and demands to know what the spy's doing here, ordering him to get out. And this was the place I felt like it suffered the most from the loss of the original footage, because I would have loved... You mean the fight scene that we didn't get to see? (laughs) Yeah. It sounded like terrible <laughs> like it sounded like you know because it you know like unlike the one from like uh what was it marco polo i think yeah it does it does yeah. not sound exciting yeah we it does not marco polo one that sounded like riveting right like errol flynn stuff this sounded just like someone like i mean and i know yeah there were rapiers or whatever you know if you want to get all technical about it but it sounded like somebody kind of like half-heartedly knocking forks together yeah. and then that's it I assumed that they did not actually fight, that Stephen was so hapless. Well, what it seems is that Stephen is kind of refusing to fight and he's refusing to do anything but, you know, block. And that's what it seems like. So you have one guy who's trying to do, you know, sword stuff and one guy who's just trying to not do sword stuff. Which could be serious. It could be funny and we can't see it and we don't know. Right. And like, and of course, like they have a bunch of those uncomfortable Steven stills that make it even more awkward. <laughs> yeah. As it's right? just confused it's just Steven like, tink, the whole time. Tink, tink, and he's just like, Ooh, <laughs> oh, oh, while oh. he's trying to insist that he has important news, but Gaston's just refusing to listen to anything he says. And at the end, Gaston disarms Steven and just tells him to get out, refusing to listen to him 
But he's also not going to kill this guy because right. I'm figuring that even Gaston won't kill a guy who is holding the sword by the wrong end. Well, and it's 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 I, I, that that just mystified me. Like the biggest ass in the story is like, <laughs> oh, you get out of here, you rascal, potential murderous spy for my enemy, <laughs> right? And as Stephen leaves, Gaston just pulls a Tommy Wiseau and starts throwing yeah. everything around. Why, Steven, why? I did not duel him. I did not. When Nicholas Moose enters, Gaston claims that he found Steven going through Nicholas's papers, being a spy and doing spy stuff, and not trying to say a word or anything. Nicholas thinks that Steven only would have come back if he had something important to say, but Gaston, the lying liar, just insists Stephen was rummaging around and didn't say anything. Outside, Stephen is just sadly wandering the streets like the Incredible Hulk at the end of an episode. And he realizes that he's being followed. He grabs his shadow, but it's just Anne. He tells Anne to get back to the house. It's curfew time. But she wants to stay with the first person in her life who's ever been nice to her ever. So now Steven Taylor's stuck with this rag doll. Ah, I was waiting for it. I was waiting. I was like, <laughs> we're running out of episodes. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Oh. Aerosmith strikes again. Oh no. So bad. Uh yeah, this was also a misdirect too, I felt, because I was like, oh, this is definitely a new companion. She's way too persistent. Yeah. Uh but no, well, you know, she was written as one. Yeah. And apparently even in the final scripts, they kept making the mistake of having Anne's name turn up in the last scene instead of Dodo <laughs> in, the, in like the stage directions. The camera The world that could have been. The two of them have nowhere to go. So they decide to hide out at Preslin's empty shop because, hey, Anne knows Paris and knows how to get there. Guys, we only have three sets. <laughs> tried to explain the situation to him. He turned to me and he said, if we do ally ourselves with the Dutch, you, de Coligny, will go down to history as the sea beggar. Back at the Admiral's house, de Coligny is telling Nicholas that he thinks he's persuaded the king to join the Dutch in the war against Spain. Afterward, the king told him that if we do ally with the Dutch... You, de Coligny, will be known to history as the Sea Beggar. Dun dun dun. Now, the nice thing is that the actor is playing it like it, this is actually an honor, that this is a thing. He, he's not playing it in the way that the actual story is moving. He is pushing against that by trying to do this thing because the dramatic irony is we know what that means and he doesn't. Yes. But historical context also means that he knows what that means and none of us do. <laughs> <laughs> Just note how in this episode and the next, William Hartnell was only credited as the abbot. This gives us our only episodes of the series where no one's credited as the doctor. Mm -hmm. huh. Which is impressive. Or Some Doctor Who, trivia. depending. Yeah. yeah. So we move on to episode three, Priest of Death. Did Terry Nation name this episode? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> uh, honestly, I was expecting a lot more from something called the Priest of Death. 
Uh, have we been keeping track of which episodes sound like Finnish metal bands? <laughs> this definitely has a Terry Nation vibe to it. Anne and Stephen awake at Preslin's shop, having spent the night there. Stephen's planning to go to the Abbott's house in order to find his friend, because he's still convinced, you know, the doctor and the Abbott are the same person. Anne protests... But Stephen's sure that the doctor's there and will protect them. He does agree. Yeah, sure. I'll find some really dirty clothes and a hat to use as a disguise. No one will know me then. Anne refuses to stay at the shop alone, but she's also afraid to go back to the abbot's house, despite Stephen's assurances that he's almost certain that his friend's pretending to be the abbot. She finally agrees to go with him, And they make a plan that if they're recognized, she's to run back to the shop and he'll make sure that the guards chase him. Kings are recognized only by the power they wield. The Queen Mother seems to claim this power. Take care, Your Majesty, that it does not prove detrimental to yourself and to France. (laughs) At the Louvre, King Charles and his mommy are meeting with his advisors. We have de Coligny, Tavan, and the confusingly named Toligny. Oh, that guy. Toligny is an actor who I've seen in a trillion things. He's turned up in Doctor Who before. He had a long-running role as the uh, slightly lascivious um, resident of an old folks' home in the sitcom Waiting for God that I just keep thinking of him as Basil. Uh, That is because that's who it is. Michael Bilton. Wait, I'm sorry. Waiting for God yeah. is the name of the old folks home. That's yeah. That's dark. That's a little, that's dark. <laughs> yeah. It's a play on Waiting for God, but yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's really quite a good show mostly. But uh, anyway. In one corner, we have de Coligny pushing for France to ally with the Dutch, saying that a war would help to unify the country. It would prevent religious strife. He says that as things are now, a tiny little incident could send everything into chaos. In the other corner, we have Tavan, who argues, eh, incidents happen daily and there's been no riot. The marriage was meant to be the unifying thing and France can't afford a war. Charles can only add that his mummy also thinks they can't afford a war. Tolianyi helplessly adds that by treaty, England should help them in a war against Spain, so I guess that's a point in its favor. In the end, the king just gets bored with all this war talk and wants to move on. As the council continues, de Coligny is talking about how the queen mother's promises to uphold the rights of the Huguenots have not been kept, which Tavan calls treasonous. Charles is just getting annoyed that all this arguing is going on, He just wants to amuse himself, play some tennis, do some hunting, and not worry about all this silly religion stuff. De Coligny warns him that it seems that his mother holds all of the power, and that could be to the detriment of France and to him. Don't make the subtext text there, Admiral. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Never a good rule. (laughs) Homie definitely said said the quiet quiet part part out loud. loud. (laughs) (laughs) Did we just say that at the same time? Anyway, yes, like I was definitely like, ooh, yep. someone's going to die. <laughs> and Catherine just dusts herself off, gets up and walks out. And Charles is just like, well, 
Mom left. Guest meeting's over. And she is in the entirety of this elaborate political sta- uh, meeting spoken once to ask someone to help her up to leave. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? And that's the first time she speaks as well. Yeah. She yeah. has just glared at everybody, pure yep. poison the entire time for wasting her time with this meeting. And Charles, being done with all of that racket, goes to look at a new racket. Yep. And drags the admiral off with him. Because, you know, the king is happy that somebody finally challenged his mum's authority. I, I've brought back the servant who ran away. You have done well, my son. Father, you may leave us. I will settle this matter. Very well, my lord, Abbot. I felt you would be safer here, as Bonder waits for the sea beggar. Back at the abbot's residence, Stephen insists that he needs to speak to the abbot about a man who's going to die today. The abbot enters, annoyed that someone's disturbing his peace. And Stephen, at this point, is absolutely certain now that he sees him up close that this is the doctor. And he tells the abbot that he's come to return the runaway servant girl, much to Anne's surprise. The abbot sends everybody who's with him away. And Stephen says that he thought she'd be safer here with you, wink, wink, as Bondeau waits for the sea beggar before the doctor or abbot can respond Tavan enters to talk with the abbot and the abbot mentions that they now have the girl who stayed with the sea beggar and she sends Stephen and Anne out of the room so that they could talk privately Stephen listens in he overhears the location of the assassination and he decides that they should leave and go and warn Nicholas He's not at all suspicious that the abbot's not the doctor. He just thinks that they've talked to the doctor, told him what's going on. Now they should go and warn Nicholas. Colbert comes in. He identifies the man with the girl as the Englishman who is with the Huguenots. And oh, by the way, they're both gone now. I didn't think to stop them, I guess. The abbot doesn't seem to be too distressed because it's too late to warn de Coligny anyway. Stephen and Anne make it back to the Admiral's house, and they warn Nicholas that the Catholics plan to kill the Admiral today on his way home, and Nicholas rushes off. Soon, de Coligny is waiting on a deserted street. The assassin is in an attic room above with a rifle. According to the transcript that I read as I was watching this, as the Admiral walks along, The paper that he's reading is blown by the wind and he stops to retrieve it just as the shot rings out. So that's why the assassin misses. Because in fiction, you can never just be a lousy shot. (laughs) He's wounded in the arm as people, including the just arriving Nicholas, rush to help him. But Coligny just waves them off, choosing to TR it all the way back to his home. I, I was thinking about some of what you were saying, Kieran, well, like while I was watching the episode, because those early firearms were notoriously, I mean, I don't know if it's just that most people were not well trained enough to shoot straight or that they tended not to shoot straight because they weren't machined as well or exactly what it is. But even up through like the Civil War, it was hard mm-hmm. to be a very good marksman. It's also specifically, we've had, you know, people who were in the historical setting up to this point, but this is a real historical event. The assassination attempt on the colony is a, is, was the real inciting inf- incident for everything that happened after it. And this all more or less happened as well as the BBC budget could allow. Uh, 
I'm not sure why the assassination failed historically, but we can take a guess that this is probably about right. At at this point, I'm like, I guess the doctor just wanted to kill somebody. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to me, I thought he had like had like this is where I started to falter, too, because I was like, well, he's got a plan. But boy, he sure is speaking confidently about this Bondo guy being a stone cold, awesome killer. Yeah. And then like but they still do the misdirect where he's like, I'm going to re- go to retire to my, you know, whatever. And the the marshal's like, uh, no, you don't. I'm yeah. Keeping my eye on you. Because everything's gone wrong since you've been here. And that's literally the next scene. Yeah, exactly. Back at the Abbott's house. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Marshal is not part of the same faction as the Abbott. The Abbott is with the hardliners who are mostly not in town. He is their representative that will become the House of Bees and be a whole thing in the there's a war with three kings named Henry in it. It it gets very confusing. Luckily, <laughs> the story ends before that happens. But yeah, so basically, the abbot realizes that things are not going well with Tavan here. He wants to go, but Tavan won't let him. Colbert rushes in, says that the assassination failed. The assassin got away, but de Coligny was only wounded. And now Tavan is like... Yeah, everything's fallen apart since you got to town, Abbott. And he orders him killed as a traitor. The guards are confused, but they advance and ding for the doctor, I guess. All because of that Colbert rapport. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done. I'm done. Took a whole second and a half. (laughs) I give you an order. See, it is done. Not another word. From either side. I've had enough of your bickering. Leave me. All of you. So, Decon Yi has been taken back to his house, and he's lost a lot of blood on the way. Stephen tells Nicholas that he tried to warn Gaston yesterday, but I guess no one listens like Gaston. (laughs) (laughs) Or I guess... (laughs) (laughs) Really, And he had no idea who the sea beggar was anyway. Nicholas just sadly says, yes, but I would have known. Stephen is still insisting that the abbot can't be behind the plot. He's the doctor, I tell you, the doctor. Toligny comes in on his way to an emergency council meeting and says he just learned that the abbot has been murdered and that they're blaming the Huguenots. Stephen, of course, is highly upset to hear that his friend has been killed and rushes off. At our council meeting, Charles is talking about how he wants those assassins caught and punished. His acting was, I actually really enjoyed like his angry laying down the Barry Justice acting in this scene. He's, he's, and then one before it, when he actually says to call the council, he was like, his, his yelling was very good. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, he's ordering Tavan to keep the admiral safe, empty the streets of Catholics. If anything further happens, it's on your head, and he sends everyone out. You are the king. Yes, I am the king, and to be obeyed. Now keep out of my sight unless you care to end your days in a convent. I would wish you have the courage, my son. I have but to give the order. His mommy then enters, unhappy that he dared to summon a council without her authorization. Here, he kind of stands up to her, threatens to throw her in a convent, and she's just like, yeah, I wish you had the guts to do that. 
It's the best scene in the serial. (laughs) I wish a monarch would. (laughs) I think it's the second best, but it's really good. Charles says that he knows that she's behind this assassination attempt. And she's just like, yup, of course it was me. And it's a good thing, too. Now that there's a Protestant prince waiting in the wings to be king, these guys have a kill list and you're on it. So there, you're a sucker. In the middle of a street, there are gawkers who are just standing around looking at the abbot's dead body, getting riled up about how those Huguenots are killing our priests now. Kill them! Stephen arrives and sees the body. And, you know, he's upset as people are talking about how they saw 15 Huguenots all kill him. And they're crying out for revenge. Colbert, who's nearby, points to Stephen and says, He was one of them! And the angry mob chases Stephen, who's now running for his life as the episode ends. Was anybody else surprised that the last scene in this is Stephen getting viciously ripped apart by an angry mob? I did not see that one coming. Ding for Steven. Ding for Steven. And yeah. then we leave the episode on a shot of the doctor's corpse Just lying dead in the on the ground. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So much for this show. Yeah, my 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 notes were like, doctor's dead, I guess. <laughs> Is this time for regeneration? I was like waiting for that <laughs> caption to be like. Uh, meanwhile, unnoticed, the doctor's eyes flutter, but nope, fade to black, dead. Bear in mind, we're all adults who are broadly capable of following along with what drama can present to us. Imagine what this was to a six-year-old who had just gotten through 12 episodes where the Daleks could kill all the doctor's friends, and... And, and now have, we are. they have to wait another week with the thought of the doctor's corpse in their heads. Yeah. The idea that the doctor is fallible and that this can get super dark is something they've been building to through a few stories now. But this had to have hurt some children's heads. Yes. I, I'm really interested in the post post recap to hear exactly what the <laughs> audience numbers yeah. were like. <laughs> Uh, because that that should be really interesting. Let us move on to episode four, Bell of Doom. So it's the next afternoon. Anne has spent the night at Preslin's shop, and Stephen finally arrives. He's spent all night and most of the morning hiding and evading guards and, I guess, an angry mob. He tells her that his warning to Nicholas came too late. His friend is now dead, And the only thing left for him to do is try to find the TARDIS key. Hopefully the doctor's clothes are here in this shop and the key's there, or I'm stuck in 16th century France forever. It does a good job, this story, of making every single regular contrivance of the show, the the plot contrivances that have driven every story up till this, sound like the ramblings of a lunatic. (laughs) Meanwhile, Tavan and Duval are discussing Stephen. They have to find him before the St. Bartholomew's Day celebration, because then he'll just be able to escape into the crowd. As they talk, Tavan is summoned by the Queen Mother, probably because she has some plans in mind to protect her from any blowback. By evening, Stephen and Anne have torn Preslin's shop apart, and they've found nothing except the doctor's walking stick. 
Anne suggests that maybe he's with Preslin, but Stephen says, nah, Preslin's dead or in prison. And then we hear a voice saying he is not. And it's the doctor. Okay. I've been in the closet all this time. <laughs> yeah, I've just been here in this shop this whole time. I know what you two did three nights ago. And the thing is, watching this for the first time is really bewildering. And you're going, wait, where has he been? What's going on? But after you've seen it a couple of times... It's still bewildering. But the doctor just re-enters the story and the energy of everything changes just because of his presence. It's yeah. a weird effect. Hartnell could do that. Well, it's also such a relief that he's not dead. Yes. This is true. Back at the Admiral's house, Toligny is assuring Gaston that the king is doing his best to prevent another attack. But Gaston doesn't trust a Catholic king's Catholic guard. And rightfully so, as we'll find out. Gaston suggests that they take the Admiral out of Paris, but he's too hurt to be moved. And the Admiral says that he does not fear death, he just hopes they have nothing to fear from his survival. They do. You didn't turn up. Yes, well, I was unavoidably delayed. Come around that now. Come along, let's go. Come along. Back at Preslin's shop, the doctor tells Stephen that you should have just listened to me and just stayed at the tavern. You had like a thousand francs, dude. You could have just paid the guy for a room or something. Just drink for three days straight. Stephen's just like, I did, doctor, but you didn't show up for three days. The doctor just says, I was unavoidably delayed. But never mind that. We should just go. For all the people who want to point out that there are recent times when Doctor Who has felt like like Rick and Morty, this is the most Rick and Morty Doctor <laughs> Who ever feels. <laughs> and we're all just left asking, no, Doctor, where have you been this whole time? You clearly were the dead abbot. Or were you? Who knows? I'm still waiting for the doctor to turn himself into a pickle, by the way. <laughs> it's now that we finally learned that to our shock, Stephen has been the Costello this whole time. <laughs> so as the curfew bell rings, Anne mentions that they could escape tomorrow in the St. Bartholomew celebrations. Stephen mentions about the Catholics trying to kill de Coligny, and the doctor immediately asks for the year. When he learns that it's 1572, he tells Anne to go home at once, stay off the streets. She says she has nowhere to go, just her aunts, and they'll find her and kill her there. But the doctor just pushes her out the door as Stephen protests, tells her, avoid the guard, stay indoors tomorrow, it'll be fine. As Anne sadly leaves, the doctor says that the Catholics will have much more on their minds tonight than finding a servant girl, and he rushes Stephen back toward the TARDIS. And he means it. There's yeah. no humor to, to the doctor in this moment. There's nothing genial about it. It's just, okay, we're running now. Yeah, it's like, we gotta go. We gotta go right now. Well, there's always been a sense of dread throughout this serial, and I came into it knowing that this serial was called The Massacre, right. and we haven't had a massacre yet, 
So it's like, oh, this is bad. And imagine how you would feel not knowing that this serial is called The Massacre. Absolutely. Because <laughs> the audience at the time wouldn't really have. bad is coming. Yeah. The good people of Paris know their enemies. They will take care of them. The good people? Madame, if you rouse the mob, the innocent will perish with the guilty. Innocent? Paris, they can have no innocence. So back at Tavan's home, Catherine de' Medici silently enters and gives him a signed order from the king for their plans tomorrow. Tavan has a list of Huguenot leaders, but Catherine says, no, that's not needed. The good people of Paris will take care of our enemies. That, that was so Oh, I'm sorry. Like, but like, <laughs> you've been bleeped so many times, Andy. It doesn't matter anymore. I know, I know. But like, I remember that scene. I was like, oh, like he's like, I'm gonna be surgical about this. And she's like, why bother? Yes, yeah. let the streets run red with blood. Yeah. Like, this this scene is Damn. amazing. It's very good. I don't know the actress who plays Catherine at all, and she's terrific. And I do know something of the guy playing Tavan, and there's a reason he was, you know, in Bridge on the River Kwai and Ben-Hur. I was going to say, this is your favorite one, isn't it, Kieran? Nope. That's that's coming still. Oh, I know which one it is. Okay. Is it the scene where Dodo appears and Dodo's being Dodo because Dodo is Dodo? Anyway, enough talk about Dodo. Was that Dodo, Dada? <laughs> so... Tavan objects to this whole mob idea, saying they'll kill the innocent as well as the guilty. And Catherine's just like, eh, heresy can have no innocence. Tavan does say, Henry has to live at least or else we're going to have a holy war on our hands with Protestant Europe. Catherine objects, but eventually relents that it would be smart policy not to kill a prince though they both may regret an act of mercy. So what I think is also so great about this scene is that Tavan has been like a villain throughout this this whole thing. I mean, like, yeah. he's pretty sneaky, too. He turns the um, the murder of the abbot in his favor and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And his, like, kind of horror about how far awry this has gone, like, you end up liking Tavan at the end of this, and I was like, oh, I didn't expect that. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you like you think somebody's the villain and they're like that kind of like lawful evil type. And then you meet like the real chaotic evil person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, oh, that's Bear it. in mind. Catherine de' Medici was famous as being the person, the biggest expert on both astrology and astronomy in France. She made it her business to make everyone creeped out at her. And she was the most dangerous political operative who maybe whoever lived. She was good at this. And what this was, was this. Well, it's called the massacre. She was dangerous. And if you're a fan of civilization and especially civilization six, then Catherine de' Medici's entire, you know, mode of play is in spying and spycraft. That's how I've been dealing with the pandemic. <laughs> so, yeah. And her saying that they may both regret letting Henry to live is probably a nod to the fact that months after Catherine's death, Henry's going to become King Henry IV of France. No, he's, it's Henry III, Charles IX's brother. He's waiting in the wings. And then you're going to get the War of the Three Henrys. And everything she's built is going to fall apart. Setting off the Henry cinematic universe. Yep. Enough Henrys. 
So many <laughs> Henrys. Why'd they have to have three different guys play Henry? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oops, all Henrys. So yeah, it's Tavan's job to see that Henry escapes and to also make sure that the city gates get closed. After Catherine leaves, he tells Duval to release the wolves and that none save Henry are to be spared. He also gives the job of getting Henry out of the city to Duval and says that at dawn, the city will weep tears of blood. The TARDIS is back near the Admiral's house, which of course is being guarded. An officer arrives and relieves the guards an hour early. The guards are just told to go and don't argue. And the officer, after those guards leave, knocks on the Admiral's door, shouting to be let in. And as this is going on, the Doctor and Stephen rush into the TARDIS and leave. We are then treated to various woodcuts of the massacre that Tosh apparently found while doing research for the story at the British Museum. I remember when we were watching this, because this is one of the rare episodes that I watched at the same time as Shawnee. We were doing a live stream of it. And I remember wondering whether this was the actual footage or exactly how they handled this. Because I found it fairly disturbing that we move over, like we we go from live action, or I mean, it's a reconstruction, but we would have gone from live action to stills from a painting or woodcut. Wait, so that was, in, that was what they yes. intended to do? They, no, this is what they did. Yeah, the woodcuts, yes. Did they do that thing that they did in the reconstruction with people's heads over them or any <laughs> sort of action? So you the, would, so you the, would like, know who they were? I yeah. think Moon so. Moon wolf t-shirt but, style. But like. Yeah, no, the, I mean, but yeah, so you you know, you know specifically that it is Nicholas being gutted and oh. the Admiral being, dis- being oh. defenestrated. And and Gaston gets oh. ripped apart. It's yeah. Oh, the, that's what that was. I just thought it was yeah. like scenes of chaos and then showing. Oh, that's a little weird. And right the now. other elderly Protestant advisor who was you know caring for uh, Michael Bilton. Yeah, it, 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 all of their deaths. These are specifically the illustrations of these actual historical persons' deaths too. This isn't just generic images. I found it and the kind of muted massacre sounds actually pretty disturbing. Yeah. Uh, Probably more disturbing than actually seeing some of this stuff happening because, of course, they wouldn't have been able to go as far on on British television. Not at all. I mean, you got to remember, they blew up a planet last time and this... This got more letters of complaint than anything the show had ever done. Yeah, really. They they were. Oh yeah, we'll with, we'll with, get into that. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, those woodcut illustrations forced some parents to answer some awkward questions. Even after all this time, he cannot understand. I dare not change the course of history. Well, at least I taught him to take some precautions. He did remember to look at the scanner before he opened the doors. Now, they're all gone. All gone. Back inside the TARDIS, Stephen is insisting there had to be something that they could have done, but the doctor insists they cannot change the course of history. So back to cannot from should not. The doctor explains the massacre goes on for several days in Paris, spreads all over the place. It was such a senseless waste. Tons of people died, including the Admiral. 
Stephen just asks, and what about Anne Chaplet? When the doctor doesn't know who that is, Stephen gets really mad and says, she's the girl who is with me, who you could have brought with us, but you just left her to the slaughter. The doctor kind of suggests, well, she, she might have survived it. You know, that could have happened. It might have been the right thing to leave her, but Stephen's having none of this. She was already being hunted by the guard. You just sent her back to a place that we were watching. She had to have died. The doctor quietly insists that if she died, she died. Dolph Lundgren from Rocky Four style. But Stephen's had enough. He's jaded by all this. Another Aerosmith reference thrown in there. <laughs> oh. Come on. Save some of these references. I mean, you're going to need them to get through the sister toy maker. <laughs> anyway. Stephen's just jaded by all this and says that wherever we land next, I'm out. I want no part of your lack yeah. of regard for human life. They land, the door opens, and Stephen gives a curt goodbye and <laughs> tries to go. Without even looking where he's going off into. Nope. The doctor tries to explain that sometimes history gives us terrible shock. Sometimes we can't quite understand its patterns. I firmly believe that I was right to do what I did, but Stephen leaves without another word. Good scene. And just about as good a one follows where Hartnell gives like the speech of his career here. Yeah. The doctor laments that Stephen just doesn't understand that dare not change the course of history. And now they're all gone. None of them could understand. Mm -hmm. Not even Susan or that Chatterton fellow. And then he gets his name right for like yeah. the first time. And if that doesn't have a tear in your eye, then you are not human and you have not been paying attention. That was really good. That was that's the thing I think I'm I'm saddest of of missing from this episode is being yeah. able to see his emote during that because I mean it was it would clearly have been a push in you know it would clearly have been just acting front and center. You know, in, a, in an episode that was already pretty heavily acting heavy, right? Yeah. Like there's not a lot of science. There's no sci-fi conceit. So, yeah, that was good. I listened to that a couple times. I mean, I think I gasped because he, he name checks all of the companions yeah, thus right. far. And we already know Hartnell's relationship, especially with the actresses who played Susan and Vicky. And I'm sure like Vicky leaving was still really raw. And it's also right in the aftermath of stories where the doctor fails to save people left yeah. and right. And yeah. here he felt like he had to make a choice that is clearly colored by that. This yeah. is not just about this moment. Yeah, he's also, in a way, is trying to convince himself. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I really like that. This is also really the point where you're realizing this is an ongoing narrative. This is the first acknowledgement the show really does that isn't just a throwaway reference that the Daleks are back or someone is leaving and someone is arriving. This speech is the show acknowledging that it is telling a longer story than these individual ones and that they are going somewhere with it. Who's responsible for this speech? It was Donald Tosh. It was Tosh. I figured it was yeah. I figured that everything after they left France was probably Tosh. Okay, so as we understand the politics behind the scenes to be Wiles was really passionately wanting just to, to try and screw over Hartnell only to have realized 
he can't win, that this is a terrible situation. All he could do is wreck the show. And he, this is when he decided to leave. Meanwhile, Tosh going is going to Hartnell behind his back to just basically tell him, I didn't want anything to do with all of this. I wrote you this speech because you're not in this story very much. And I wanted to give you one chance to show what you could do. And Hartnell had been in failing health and was having lots of complaints about being given too many speeches because they were harder and harder for him to do. But Tosh going to him and telling him that meant he nailed it in one. <laughs> he made the effort and yeah. And the result is is there in the reconstruction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this, he even thinks that maybe he should just, you know, pack in this adventuring lifestyle and go home, but says that he can't even do that. So, yeah. From our great high <laughs> to our great low. <laughs> to our even lower low. Yeah. So yeah. I don't mean to sidestep Bay here, but as a serious question, can you, without naming them, think of any moment where you really feel the doctor is lower than this? Ever. 60 years, basically. Yeah, no. I mean, this is kind of... I mean, maybe. I mean, well, maybe when you get to season nine of the modern series. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's at best debatable. This is... Yeah, yeah, it's way beyond anything else that the show's done to this point for just oh for sure yeah the for doctor sure. as a character. Well, we don't we don't usually get the doctor on his own either. I mean, he might go off on his own, and when we have him here on his own, he is dark and brooding and sad, and then he kidnaps another stranger. He has one moment <laughs> where he is the only time in the whole show alone in his TARDIS. That's it. Sad never old man. Before. Yeah. And then. And then they go and ruin it. What's your name, child? Dodo. What? Dorothea, really. Dorothea Chaplin. Chaplin? Yes, but uh, you're not French, are you? Don't be dumb. Your granddad wants to. Yeah, because outside, it's 1966. There's a girl running for help. She spots a police box and runs inside. And the doctor's all like, who are you? But she just wants to know where the phone is. There's a boy who's been in an accident and she needs to call the police. The doctor just tells her to run along and find another phone. But now she's wondering what this is if it's not a police box and who this crazy old guy is. Just wide-eyed and annoying. And with a strange, funny accent that will disappear between now and our next serial. Great. Well, thank goodness. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She remarks that there's something odd going on here, a fact that took her way too long to realize. And as she's figuring this out, the other idiot runs back in. Steven's back saying, you have to take off. The coppers are on their way. I like, I love this so much because this is the doctor, yeah. right? And, you know, for him to be, for, for Steven to be like, oh my God, it's the Rosers. And the doctor's like, and then they leave, like they peel out. <laughs> and it's it's also almost a joke on the rest of this story because all of a sudden it's Stephen who's been off having this weird adventure. We are not shown. Yeah. But he needed to know the context of what's going on. And he is showing Hartnell how it's done. You don't need to take three and a half episodes. I can get this the same thing accomplished in two minutes. Absolutely nobody says anything about this, but I guess forget that kid. Forget that dead kid. Forget the fact that I Stephen probably caused that accident somehow. <laughs> forget, forget the fact that we have no idea why Stephen's come back. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> hey, I just murdered a kid. We got to go. We gotta yeah. get the hell out of here. I shot a kid. I, like Dark Stephen came out. I, 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 just, I, was, I found myself in the 60s. You know how I get when I'm in the 60s. We, <laughs> I had the whole Alabama accent again. It was terrible. <laughs> the doctor closes the door. They materialize. There was apparently supposed to be at some point a um, potential cameo by Ian and Barbara here watching the TARDIS vanish. Oh, that would have been so cool. But they were unavailable, so that didn't happen. There were like a couple times that almost happened, right? They were off doing like music videos and and still shots. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, anyway, this is when Steven notices that there's suddenly a girl who's in here for some reason. When he asks her how she got in here, she says, on me feet, same as you. So we somehow have found the one human being on the planet who's dumber than Steven. To be fair, every other joke in this story has been so incredibly dark that maybe they thought that was a good way to lighten the mood. They were wrong. <laughs> as confused by her bewildering statement and insane accent as we are, He just yells about how, you know, how could you have taken off? We could land anywhere, any planet, any time, and you've kidnapped this random person. And she's just like, whatever, man. Yeah, whatever, daddy-o. I'm a hip teenager fill-in. And doesn't she look like Susan? It's just like, oh, my God. And then she's like, my name's Dodo. And it's like, oh, (laughs) so... Yeah, <laughs> the last the last two words in my notes were Jesus Christ. <laughs> right, More like, names, Dodo. Oh, oh have a up? funny, funny accent. Oh, I'm irreverent. What I walk in here, what causes a dead kid who gives a shit? My aunt doesn't care. Boy, like, that's yeah. <laughs> come on, that's, we we can we can all offer fun guesses as to what her accent is supposed to be. Every time it changes. Is it a Liverpudlian stroke victim? Is she just a vaguely amnesiac New Zealander? It's it's hard to tell. You are heading into a golden age of guess the accent in Doctor Who, and yeah. she is just there to be your guide. And Stephen's just like, what the heck? And the doctor's like, well, what else could I do? And you're one to talk yelling at me for not letting that chaplet girl on earlier. You know, and it's just this whole thing. Stephen tells the girl, look, you may never get home again. She's totally cool with it. The doctor asks for her name. It's Dorothea Chaplet, but she just goes by Dodo, a fitting name indeed. Stephen here wonders if she's related to Anne, because like we all know, through 400 years of history, a name would have been passed down matrilineally. That's the way it works, right? (laughs) But the doctor's just like, yep, very possible. Welcome aboard, Dodo. Don't think too hard, Stephen. You'll hurt yourself. Well, there is the headcanon fan theory that the thing he is trying to prevent Stephen from realizing is that he and Anne, the servant girl, spent the night in that shop together and this could be the result. Yes, it's possible that Dodo is a descendant of Stephen, according to some fan theories. I think that would be an insane thing to do, but it's also not great for them to just hint at it. But yep, this is how we end our story. So... Our reactions to this story, are we going to give it a thumbs up, thumbs down, or a meh? 
And let's see, who wants to begin? I'll go. Um, I, it's thumbs up, man. I just like, it's, I don't know. I don't want to say it. I don't, because it's like, you know, it's whack. It's weird. It does some weird stuff. So I think it gets a thumbs up for that. I think it, I think it has to get a thumbs up for that final speech. You know, some of the moments, uh, some of the really good scenes in this one, uh, Catherine de Medici for carrying, you know, a performance basically with like five lines of dialogue. But also, you know, like, again, I was like genuinely kind of like disturbed by the massacre parts. And even more so now that I know what it was like, it's, you know, I mean, it was a little ham handed putting their like, their like little still shots above it. It would have been, like, the only thing that could have made it worse was like a little red arrow pointing at the guy <laughs> on the <laughs> This is Gaston. Like very Here um, is his spleen. Right. Like very like Wes Anderson. Like Gaston. Gaston. You know, like the little arrow. But other than that, you know, disturbing. Uh so thumbs up for me. No one dies like Gaston. I mean, the Bell of Doom is just the sheer number of dings that you have to accumulate yes. in that scene. Ten thousand dings. <laughs> Bay, how about you? Why do you give him this? This is probably gonna be controversial. I'm gonna give it a meh. I don't want to give it a thumbs down. It doesn't deserve it. But there are some things about it that I think, let me start off with the things I liked. I think that's a better way of going about it. There are some really great performances. Uh, Tavernes, most of the historical figures are really good. Tavernes, Medici, Charles. I, I think a lot of the the historical figures are, are acted very well. Uh, I would have loved to have actual footage because I think we lose a lot of the performance. And perhaps that could have pushed me into a thumbs up category. But there were a lot of problems with the serial. Uh, the doctor is absent for most of it and you feel it. They do this weird misdirection where you think that he's going to be the puppet master behind the scenes. I, I think that that's kind of cheap that they decide to play with it. And then they're like, ah, no, just kidding. He's gone, but we can't really tell you where. I'm not a big fan of Dodo, but I'm willing to give her a chance because you always feel that way with a new companion, but it is hard. Yeah. I just don't necessarily think all of the great things about this serial, and there were a lot of them, necessarily outweigh the problems with it. But I did learn something, and isn't that the most important thing? <laughs> the more you know, do, 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 do. I feel like a star just shooting across the sky. There are children still weeping from the woodcut <laughs> 60 or 70 year olds still crying, thinking of the massacre. So, Kieran, what do you want to give this story? I mean, it, it has to be a thumbs up just for the best scenes of it. I mean, there are some very plotting things in the first half, but when you get the three or four really phenomenal ones, you have to sort of embrace it. It's also got an odd place in the show because the Dalek master plan is kind of the end of the show that had happened up till that point. It, there's nowhere you can go after that doing the things they'd have been doing, right? And so you're going to have a whole year and a bit ahead of you, not to spoil anything at all, of a lot of experimental stories that are kind of asking the question, wait, what is Doctor Who at this point? We're not getting canceled. What are we 
actually going to do with the show now. What are we? And a lot of elevator pitches of people, hey, I want to try doing a Doctor Who story. Let's see how it goes and forming it from there. And this is sort of the start of that. With some good and some not so good results. Yeah, there are things that do not work in this story and there are production things behind it that are messed. But for a couple of the big speeches alone, you've got to love those. I mean, there's nothing that can quite match them when this story's good for everything that's come before it. And when the story doesn't work, at least we don't actually have to look at the real pictures. I know that at one point you said this was one of, if not your favorite William Hartnell story. Do you still hold that opinion after rewatching it and going through it like this? I don't know. For one thing, my relationship with Hartnell is often remembering the best moments, you know? It's not the age of the show I saw first or even love best, but I think it's the one I want most back from Hartnell, certainly. But I mean, the the best moments of, say, the Dalek invasion of Earth, it it has got Barbara ramming a a Dalek with a truck. So I don't know. Picking favorites is kind of hard for something that doesn't exist. Yeah, that's a fair answer. Fair answer. I'm going to go ahead and give this one a thumbs up. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting history, learning about something that I know absolutely nothing about. The best moments are fantastic. Yeah, I think that overall, it's an interesting story. I It's interesting to see a companion, at this point in the show, a companion left on their own, and seeing how horribly wrong that goes. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy this one. I think it's a top-tier historical So, our viewing numbers for this. Episode 1 was watched by 8 million people. It went down to 6 million for episode 2 and stayed there for the rest of it. Uh, The reactions at the time, as was mentioned, this one got a lot of complaints. Despite the violence being shown via woodcuts and not through action, there were viewers who complained that the story was far too gory. (laughs) 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 So yes, lots of complaints at the time about how bloody this story was. The more contemporary reviews that we have, the Discontinuity Guide calls it the best historical, the best Hartnell story, and one of the best who's ever. Space Helmet for a Cow calls it grim, downbeat, and as adult as the show gets. In the About Time series, they say that based on the director's other work on the show, she's at her best with scenes involving people sneaking around. So this one probably had a ton of highlights that unfortunately we don't get to see. Mm. And there was another review that I saw that simply said, this is Doctor Who at its best. In the polls that we talk about, in the 2008 variety, it was number 86 out of 200. In the 2013 one, it was number 100 out of 241. Solid middle of the pack. And especially for a black and white story, that is entirely missing. That's a good showing. You can't get the numbers up in those polls unless you've seen them for the most part. And they were going to be giving very few votes to these. So some of the positives that people point to, William Hartnell's performance as the Abbot. From what we can hear, it seems to be pretty sinister. It's completely lacking in his usual hums and giggles. 
And it really helps show how much of those and possibly some of his flubs were acting choices and not mistakes. So, you know, it shows that Hartnell probably deserves more credit than he's usually given. And, of course, Hartnell's monologue at the end of episode four is also praised. Peter Purvis here makes the most out of being the essential character in this story. And people say that takes a serious subject matter and it handles it very well in solid and dramatic style. The negatives that get pointed to, everything after Hartnell's big speech. From the moment that Dodo appears, it has been described as embarrassingly inept and clearly tacked on. I mean, I'm going to spoil the future of the show. This is the worst companion introduction ever. It just (laughs) is. It never hits this low again. (laughs) Oh, but Dodo's exit, wait till we get there. That is a thing of beauty. If she doesn't get sucked out into space, I'm going to be really disappointed. (laughs) Oh, I mean, they're not going to do that twice in a row, and it might be best just to drop the subject, which they might do. There's a later book that somebody wrote that tries to explain Dodo's complete confusion and lack of reaction to anything as her being in shock after a near-sexual assault for which she entered the police box looking to contact help. But then where did this dying kid come from? So that makes no sense. The, The books in the 90s did a lot of good things, and sometimes they also just threw in one random fan's desperate headcanon and put it on a page. No, that just seems like somebody desperately trying to be edgy and make it a dark serial even darker. Other negatives? It's been said that the story might give the audience too much credit and expects too much knowledge and intelligence from them. Um, Stevens coming back almost immediately after he storms off doesn't make a bit of sense and hurts the character. And this story was probably baffling to the children who are watching it (laughs) i mean if it baffled us so much and the adults who are watching it in a lot of cases this is one you have to watch multiple times and that's not how tv worked then it's mood whiplash yeah so some of the impact and aftermath of this story donald tosh this was tosh's last serial as script editor He left the script editing role after the third episode so that he could take a co-writing credit on the fourth. He was also one of several people who did considerable work on an upcoming story, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. Uh, Tosh would later submit a script to the show, but it was ultimately rejected. It was made by Big Finish, though, eventually. In 1968, he script-edited a few episodes of the Peter Cushing Sherlock Holmes and before leaving television in 1970. After that, he went to work for English Heritage, becoming the head caretaker of St. Ma's Castle in Cornwall. He was also the last surviving Hartnell-era script-editor and writer up until his death in December 2019. With John Lucarati, this is also his last story writing for Doctor Who. Well, kind of. For a long while. He did some more TV writing in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, while I said this was his last official work on Doctor Who, he submitted a script for season 12. 
He wasn't credited for that serial, however, as it was subject to a complete rewrite by the script editor of that time, who was prone to such things. Uh, Lucarati did novelize all three of his stories, and when he wrote the novel for this one, he did so based on the script rather than what actually aired. And apparently it also included a chariot drawn by greyhounds. It's been a long time since I read it. That's what one source that I saw said. <laughs> but anyway, Lucarati died in 1994 of spinal cancer. I think I said that with too much gusto. <laughs> But anyway, it's possible that part of Wiles and Tosh's goal here was to show how well things could work without William Hartnell being front and center. Even though they were on their way out, they're still working on a plan to write Hartnell out. So the interesting thing I recently learned about this is that this didn't come from them. This was the fault of the movies, that they'd sh- the world had been shown someone else in the case of Peter Cushing, could play the part of the doctor. And so the idea never quite left their heads that this could be the solution to their problems. Mm. What, just but, to replace him with, with Cushing? Or just to replace him with anybody. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> John Wiles came to a different realization. Quote, I knew I had added nothing of any worth to the program and would never get anywhere with it, but a total blank. I couldn't win against Bill. I probably didn't deserve to. I didn't want the job. Meanwhile, Peter Purvis commented, John Wiles resigned because he'd gotten wind of the fact he was about to be sacked, which he should have been. He was totally incompetent. He wasn't a nice man. I had no rapport with him. I didn't respect him. I didn't think he knew what he was doing. All the reasons why you would dislike someone who was actually senior to you, but you knew couldn't do the job. He was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I looked through books and found you a little gift. No, that's not a <laughs> yes, little gift. Yes, I thank that's you Christmas. for that gift. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. That is the best thing I've heard all century. <laughs> it's been a pretty lousy century up to this point. <laughs> so on that note, it is time to say our goodbyes. Next time, we'll be going to the Ark which is a strangely, what's the right word here? Existing story. It's, well, it's a strangely an existing, existing story. story. But it's also, you know, strangely relevant to our COVID times in which we live. And you remember I mentioned they were going to start doing some really experimental things? Yeah. Have fun. And I'd like to thank Kieran for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have derailed the evening for all of you. Well... Perhaps I should go home, back to my own planet, but I can't. Instead, I'll see you next time. (laughs) See everybody next episode when Dodo hopefully gets sucked out into space. (laughs) So yes, please um, join our Facebook group, rate, share, subscribe, tell people we exist, talk to us on Twitter, send us emails, and until next time, just... Just stay out of France. Good night, everybody.